Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It took me a long time to realize how much I was learning from my failures and not my successes. Hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I'm really good, thank you. I've been looking forward to this one for a long time. We we actually spoke not too long ago and we were chatting until from my end until the early hours of the morning. And yeah, it was an amazing conversation. And I just felt that it would be a really intriguing conversation to dive into to share with our audience as well. So I guess before we do it, let's give a little introduction to who you are, what you do and why. Alrighty. Uh, my name is Tim Kane. Uh, I've been in game development It'll be 42 years next month. I've been a programmer, a designer, a producer, an, a game studio owner. And I think people know me mostly for Fallout, but I've made a lot of other games too. <laughs> but talking about Fallout to begin with, I, I think like it's one of your most synonymous games. And I guess like the the fact that drew me to this conversation was kind of that phenomenon that was the fallout phenomenon so a lot of people when they're looking at games as to how games are produced and put out there into the world and played by countless players including myself they often think as to how did such an amazing game come into fruition so maybe if you could walk us through some of the yeah like how did it come about yeah fallout had an interesting genesis because there was no there was no plan there was no budget Basically, what happened was while myself and other people were assigned to other projects, we would get together and talk about making a game. Uh, I was making engines for fun. This is back in the mid-90s when there was nothing around like Unreal or Unity. Uh, it even predates things like Lift Tech, you know, early, early game rendering engines. So I made a 3D engine and it was not good. And I made a voxel engine and it was even worse. But I made a sprite engine that was fun and easy to use. And so artists and other designers and programmers, we would meet in the evening. Um, I would tell them, I'm going to bring pizza. If you would like to join me on your own time after 6 p.m., meet me in like conference room three. And I had expected like 15 or 20 people to show up. And I think six people showed up, maybe eight on a good day. Uh, we did that about five times, and by the end of the fifth time, we had a really good idea for a game we wanted to make, and that was Fallout. I guess, like from a game perspective, 
when you were sat around with those with those colleagues of yours and working out like the type of game you wanted to make what were the inspirations what what were you drawing on from like movies books music what what were the inspirations everybody brought different things the the artists because i think they're very visual they were really inspired by movies and ultimately when we decided to go post new post apocalyptic they talked road warrior was a huge inspiration uh, city of lost children visually was a huge inspiration uh, a boy and his dog uh, which is a much older movie with a very young don johnson in it uh, la jete which interestingly doesn't really have any motion it's a bunch of still photos um the myself and a few other designers we were really into science fiction books uh myself and chris taylor who became the lead designer we were trying to read every hugo winner that had ever come out chris is a speed reader so i would literally read a book for a week i'd give it to him and he'd come in the next day and go let's talk about it um so he was always ahead of me in that and and then everybody else just had a mishmash of things they like comic books uh previous video games tv shows and so we liked it all it all kind of went into a big mix but what came out was a very unusual unique kind of flavor yeah i guess like what was from a uniqueness of it it's you know from from my perspective i remember picking up for the first time it was one of the most intriguing games and fun games i played for a long period of time it was like totally different so what i wanted at that particular point from games is something not only new but equally was captivating enough that would move me over time and i thought that the the fallout games and the subsequent franchise was just something that really landed well with with me and it was kind of seen within the industry as a whole as to how it was perceived it it came across really really well and like a, a lot of you've got a lot of fans around fallout and you've got a lot of fans around that game um but for people that haven't worked in the industry and i guess like for just people in general what was like the development process around a game like fallout people are often disappointed when they find out how little was planned ahead of time we were very much everybody was in their 20s um none of us had ever been like i had never been in charge of a game the lead artist had never been a lead before the lead designer had been a lead designer on one previous title which is stone keep so some of the things we were talking about doing too now people talk about it all the time but back then we didn't have a word for sandbox um, or open ended gaming we just knew we wanted a big world we wanted the player to be able to go wherever they wanted we wanted the player to be able to do whatever he wanted which is now people talk about gray morality and not having a black and white moral compass in the game but for us it was just we don't want to tell the player what to do we just want them to uh, abide by the consequences of their choices and that factored into almost everything we did and we love the post-apocalyptic landscape because it let the player have that freedom to go where he wanted to go and there wasn't much in the way of law and the whole concept of retro futurism that was new to me when the lead artist brought that up i was like what? i didn't know what that was i have an engineering background i was barely allowed to take 
any classes outside of programming and things like thermodynamics. So he explained retrofuturism, which was we're making a game in the 90s, a bunch of us 20-somethings are making a game that the 50s thought the future would be. And there were some, you know, stops and starts trying to wrap our heads around that. But I think eventually the combination of everything I just described, the retrofuturism and the post-apocalyptic setting and the gray morality, just uh, it brought a lot of people into the game because they hadn't seen things like that before. Yeah, definitely. That, like, again, I remember picking it up and it was just something totally new and it was intriguing. I also like the humor that was underlying a lot of it as well. I like the way that that like played out. And I think that, yeah, I did, I did more depth to the story. I think we'll talk about this later, but in respect to storytelling, but I think at that point in time, there's a, there's a desire for enriching and captivating stories, but there wasn't a depth of narrative uh, from the games that I played anyways. It, really resonated in in respect to how Fallout did at that time. And um, I think I'd be interested to see your views on where we are today, because the industry's evolved a lot since the first iteration of Fallout came out. And um, yeah, like I see the industry very much as a cultural force now, similar to movies and music, but I'd love to get your take on that. I, I agree. That's the direction it's going. I mean, actually, Probably what I'd phrase it as is games have broadened so much that some of them are very much a cultural force, a commentary on society, uh, strong storytelling, but others have just become, you know, especially with mobile gaming, it's, it's what people do in their 15, 20 minutes of downtime here and there. There's such a, a broad scale of games being made today, I mean, just a huge volume that Pretty much, I think whatever you decide, I'm going to try to think of games that are X, of genre X or that have X as their main driving force. You can find hundreds, if not thousands of games that are trying to do that. And many of them are doing it incredibly well. Yeah, I think like, it's true. There is a depth of narrative out there, but I guess like um, quality over quantity is still a thing to be looked at. Yeah, that's been a, a big question of what, what do you mean when you say a game is really good? Are you talking about a game being popular? Are you talking about having high review scores, high sales? It's really hard to pin down what people mean when they say this is a really good game. And the only thing that seems to be a commonality is this game resonates with this person. Therefore, it's a good game. And it's why people, some people love Cuphead. Other people love Call of Duty. And then some people like Fallout. They're wildly different games, but they they mean things to people. So tell me about the journey from following Fallout, I guess, because as you said, you've, you've gone and you've created games, you've created a multitude of different games, you've set up studios, you've founded companies. Like, tell me about how that came to fruition. And I guess also how the little kid going through school and college up until your um, work within the games industry and I guess like who you are today. Uh, talk, me, talk me through maybe the evolution as a whole. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Most people get in the industry, I guess, in their 20s. I was, um, 
I was 15 years old in high school. My high school had gotten Ataris. Every other high school in my county got Apple IIs. We got Atari 800s for some reason. I dove in. I was, actually, that happened when I was 14. I dove into it really hard. So hard that my mom kind of recognized that I was getting into it more than just about anything else. I was taking my older sister. I have a sister who's eight years older, was taking a college programming class. And when she was done, I grabbed her book and read it and started using that on my uh, Atari. My mom bought me an Atari, even though we couldn't afford it. Um, and somebody who was two years older than me in high school graduated. And they, the company he went to work for needed they needed to program a high color, high resolution graphics mode and PCs could not do it. And Apple IIs could not do it. And they did some research and they found that only Atari 800s could do that resolution in that color depth, but they didn't know how to do it. And neither did my friend. And he said, I know someone who can do this. So they literally called me and this is embarrassing to say, I, my mother drove me out there and I had an interview and everything was going great. But then when, it found, when they found out I was 15, you can't hire people in Virginia to do that kind of work. When you're under 16, you either can do farm work and certain retail jobs. You can like do part-time work at a retail store or a uh, fast food restaurant. That's a Virginia law. I don't know how, much, how common it is. But they asked me when my birthday was, and I said it was in August. And that was only a few months away. And they said, we'll call you if we don't find anyone else. They called me on my birthday and I went and got my driver's license with my mom, dropped her off at home and went out on my birthday for my first day of work in the game industry. Great. It Tell was, me about the first like, few weeks, months, years in the industry. It, it, was, it was kind of surreal. Um, what I ended up doing, I was work from home. They found that was a lot easier once they found out I had an Atari. I would go out there once a week. I would meet with the, they'd call him now a producer. It was just somebody who worked there and one of their artists. Her name was Catherine, but she went by Cat. Um, she was she was just graduated from college. She would go to concerts all the time and tell me about it. She was like the coolest person I'd ever met. And she was only like five years older than me. But to me, she was like this cool adult. And she would show me what she wanted to do on the Atari. She would explain it to me. And I would go home and I would code that. And once a week, I'd bring in what I got coded. They'd look at it. I'd talk to Kat some more. And it kind of evolved into this. Um, it was an art tool. They were making a game that played over cable set top boxes and it had very specific rules for the graphics. And I was coding it and she hated, they didn't have mice back then. And she hated using the arrow keys. And I was like, what if we use a joystick? And she didn't know, I mean, there weren't joysticks on PCs back then. So she said, show me how it works. And I showed her, she said, if it's not hard and the next week it was a joystick driven art game. And apparently her productivity shot way up. Um, she'd ask for a feature, she'd have it the next week. Um, I was probably coding way too many hours than they expect me to. They weren't paying me by the hour. They were paying me. It, they paid me a certain amount of money in total 
over the project over a few weeks. To me, it was hundreds of dollars and I thought it was amazing. For them, it was probably dirt cheap. But I made this program for CAT and then school started in September. And they asked me if I could work a few days after school every week, like drive out and work. And uh, I did. And I was a part-time game industry employee. What like it was it? Yeah. Yeah. What what was it like around that time? Because obviously, when when people are looking at the industry, like when the industry first started to boom in kind of probably like the early eighties, like what 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 was it like around then? Um, because it's, it's it's intriguing to look in. Yeah, it was nineteen eighty one. Um, so the eighties were just beginning. Clothes were becoming very colorful. The PCs either were monochrome graphics or you could get, it was called CGA. You could get four colors. You didn't pick what those four colors were. It was black, white, cyan, and magenta. Absolutely hideous colors. Um, I wouldn't start, to, I'm colorblind, but I have a progressive colorblindness. I wouldn't start to lose my color vision for another four years. I wonder sometimes if CGA is what triggered it happening. It was a hideous, hideous color. And that's why I, I still mainly worked on the Atari, which could do a lot more colors at a much higher resolution. So it was, um, I worked, I think it was three days a week. Um, I took, I didn't take a six period class. Um, I, I, I had enough credits. I only took five classes instead of the normal six. So I left work an hour early. I drove on the Beltway, which anybody who lives in the Washington DC area knows is a big multi-lane highway that encircles Washington, D.C. I would get on that at 16 in our family's beater second car and drive out from where we lived in Alexandria to Tyson's Corner, go into an office building and work for four or five hours. I usually waited for traffic to die down around six or seven. I'd drive home, have dinner, do whatever homework I had real fast, and I would repeat that. Um, I think I did that Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. What was the cultures like back then in respect to these early organizations being founded? It was a small company. It was probably less than eight people. Uh, there were a couple programmers, a businessman who got us our stuff, um, a receptionist and an artist, and then a VP that I wasn't sure what he did. And over time, after about a year or two after I started, about the time I went to college, I would still come back and work winter breaks and summer breaks. They got a job, they got a, um, a contract with Electronic Arts and they were gonna make a bridge playing program for PC. At that point, they hired a designer. And that was the first time I worked with a designer. His name is Nathan Schneiderman. He could not code. I could not play bridge. So we met at flowcharts. He would draw flowcharts of like how to bid in bridge and how the, the play would proceed. And I would convert those flowcharts. By that time I was coding in C when I, my earlier stuff in Atari was on basic and a little assembly. Now it was C in assembly and the lead programmer there, Fred Klein didn't know C. So he learned C and I showed him some Techniques I was literally learning, like I would show up techniques I'd learned two weeks before in college. 
things like recursion and fast sorting methods and um, uh, point pointer uh, using pointers instead of um, arrays, you know, like building linked lists and things like that. And I would show them these things and they would go into the game. And it was an interesting cycle of learning things at school, applying them literally a few weeks later at work, working with someone who didn't code, but knew how to make flowcharts, and then working with a programmer who was learning that language along with you. It was very much, everybody was pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps in the 80s because the industry was just not defined. There were very few books you could go out and buy about doing stuff for games. You went out and bought like generic programming books and books on how to do graphics on a PC or an Atari. Contrasting between like the time of, you know, basically the early, early formation of the games industry to, I guess, like how it is today. And um, what have been some of the biggest triumphs that you have envisaged and also I guess like the biggest challenges throughout that, that time? Oh, the big, I'd say the big changes and some of them were triumphs that we were happy about and some were challenges. Graphics changed in leaps and bounds. Right when I was used to CGA, EGA came out with 16 colors, then VGA with 256 and then Super VGA with higher resolution and maybe 65,000 colors. And everything was, it was all coded differently. Um, tons of gaming hardware was being made. Tons of video cards, sound cards. They were all coded separately. This predates things like DirectX or even a VESA, which was a, a universal uh, interface into video cards. So you had to learn how to do all this yourself, often in assembly. That was the only way to interact with this hardware. It was, in some ways, it was the Wild West. There was a lot of people doing their own thing. There were no shared libraries, very little shared code. One of the biggest triumphs I got at Interplay when I worked there in the 90s was convincing them to share code. Uh, I wrote a library that encapsulated a lot of graphics modes and keyboard and mouse input. It put it all together into one library so that you didn't have to know how that stuff worked. You could just say, I want this drawn on the screen and I need events for these keys and this mouse movement and, and clicking. And that suddenly was being used in five or six games at Interplay. And it was just a relief not to have to write all of the low level stuff yourself every time for every game. Uh, publishers were becoming really big. Uh, developers were springing into existence. Interplay was a developer and about the time I got there, it turned into a publisher and a developer. So I was literally watching that happen in real time while I was working at a company. That was an interesting thing to watch. Um, late 90s, I started my own company, small development house called Troika. Then I got to learn how contracts work and all the legal side of things. I learned I wasn't good at that. <laughs> that only lasted for seven years three games in seven years. And then I, we disbanded it and we all went back into the industry as employees. Like I've, I've said several times uh, on my YouTube channel, I learned more from failure than by success. Troika taught me a great deal. <laughs> it's the best way to put that. So I don't think I'll ever run a company again. I think I've learned my lesson with Troika.
Tell me about no. the lessons learned from failure, though, because obviously it's something that resonates with me. I think that when you look at some of the biggest success stories, yeah, you see the success, but what you don't see behind that is the, the levels of failure, iteration, reflections. Um, and I guess just the ability to learn from those moments of challenge. Like, talk to me a little bit about your view as failure in, failure to succeed, I guess. Fallout was an interesting phenomenon because it succeeded in so many ways that I don't think a lot of us who were working on it, the team, knew exactly why we were successful until later when we went to other teams and worked on other projects and maybe weren't as successful. And there's so many axes we succeeded in Fallout that I sometimes go back and think about it. Like the team gel was amazing. Everybody on that team was making the same game. I've subsequently been on teams that that is not happening, that you have a lot of people, a lot of vocal people trying to make different games in one game. Um, it can really, it, it can tear apart not only the game, but the team itself. We were really lucky in that. We were also lucky that people were willing to wear more than one hat. So if an artist wrote good dialogue, Great, write that dialogue. It was good. Put it in. If a level designer wanted to do some level art, wanted to put art in the level he was putting together, that was fine. If a scripter wanted to code, if a programmer wanted to script, we just let people do those things if they were good at it. And I thought, well, well great. That's how it's always going to work. Um, subsequent games, I had people who demanded to work on things that they weren't good at. I'm, I'm a good example of that. I wrote the opening introduction to Fallout. I wrote it in one night really fast while watching an episode of The Simpsons. I wrote War, War Never Changes, you know, the battered superpowers, the, the use of petroleum and uranium as weapons of war. That's just something I spat out so we'd have something to use in addition to what was written and we could decide what we liked later. People like that one. It's what shipped. I remember thinking to myself, I can write. So on Temple of Elemental Evil, rather than, we didn't have any narrative designers. I hired a previous producer I had to do production on it. And he and I wrote, that was not a good idea. Narrative designers honed their craft over many, many years. And what I learned was I can do good short form writing. I am terrible at conversation, dialogue writing, long form writing, very, very bad. But I didn't learn that until five years after Fallout went out. It Sometimes you have to try to do something and fail at it to learn what it is you still need to know or what you need to get better at, or in some cases, just where your limitations are. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm intrigued as to understand your viewpoint on you you mentioned like people wearing multiple multiple hats. So this like premise of multi potentialites versus the rigor of dedicated roles and responsibilities. Like, what's your view on that? Because I have a I have a view that multi potentiality and diverse thought is the the way forward. I, I think that when you restrict people to roles and responsibilities, you're eliminating an awful lot of creativity and innovation. I I completely agree. Um, what happened was at Troika, we not only let people wear different hats, the first game we made, 
we didn't even know how to assign credit because so many people on the team, there's only 14 people who made that game. We didn't know how to say, well, well, we kind of know who the programmers are, but some other people did some programming too. Everybody worked on design. Um, a lot of people contributed to art. It was it was hard to draw the line. So in the end, the credit said Arcanum was made by, and we had the 14 names. Turns out places like IMDB and uh, Moby Games, they're not ready for something like that. So they ended up randomly assigning credits to us. For a while, I was the lead animator on Arcanum, <laughs> which was very funny. Um, subsequently, we 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 did change to have roles, but we often let people have multiple their, their names appear multiple times in the credit. I was surprised after shutting down Troika. I went to work at a new NCSoft created studio called Carbine. Carbine had very rigid roles, very rigid. I was the programming director. I was not expected to contribute much to design. The designers would take care of that. Um, art stayed in their lane, audio stayed in their lane. It was surprising to me because I, I used to get some of our best ideas from things from cross-disciplinary people. But I did that. And then we were three years into the project and it ran into a lot of problems um, design-wise. And I was asked to take over the role of design director. And I was like, well, can I do both? And like, nope, you have to abandon programming. And I'm like, but I, I can do both. I've done both. And it cuts out on communication overhead. No. So I had to promote one of my senior programmers to be a programming director so I could become a design director. And it was very strange. And people literally started treating me differently. And I was like, I'm the same person. I have the same ideas. I still know how the engine works. But it was an unusual environment. You were very, very, very much encouraged to stay in your lane. And it wasn't how I was used to things. And when I left Carbine, I went to Obsidian, which was a spinoff from Interplay. Very much had, like I started Interplay, I already knew about it, or at Obsidian, I knew about a third of the people there because they were from Interplay. So it was interesting as a, when you start a new job, but you already know a lot of the people, but I also knew their process. And very similarly over there, they, if people, People are assigned roles, but they often contribute outside of their assigned role. And I believe that's one of Obsidian's uh, pillars of success and why an Obsidian game feels like an Obsidian game is they have that cross-disciplinary thing encouraged. You don't have to do it. There's many people who are like, I'm an artist. I'm going to just do art. But there's a lot of artists who are like, I had an idea for a new weapon for our game, or I had an idea for a new creature. If it's good, you put it in the game. I guess it comes down to values as well. Like if you value your people and you value their voice, then you have an opportunity to lean into that diversity of thought. And that's, for me, I think that you do get restrictions and it happens in not just the games industry, but happens in a multitude of different industries whereby the expectation is just roles and responsibilities. And then they, they look and go, well, how comes we can't re retain people? Why are they leaving so quickly? It's because they're, they're, not empowered they're uninspired and there's no progression there's the progression is just too structured and you know because of that the it impacts creativity impacts longevity and impacts innovation so i think that you know the lessons that you were articulating like they're they're common but equally the solutions are there for all to see right i think 
I think one thing that helps if you're going to make an interdisciplinary group is people have to understand how to have their work critiqued. I talk about this a lot where your, your critique has to be constructive. You can't just go, that's stupid. I hate that. That's that I've told people in the past, that is such a bad thing to say. I don't even want you to open your mouth if that's how you're going to talk. And they're like, oh, you're gonna, you're censoring me. And I'm like, no, if you're going, if your critique is unconstructive, don't even bother. They're like, well, what am I supposed to say? And I'm like, well, what don't you like about that? And it, it took a long time, but you can eventually tease out of people. It's like, well, like in Fallout, we're supposed to be making a retro futurist game, but that armor doesn't look retro futurist. Okay, that's constructive. Um, somebody wanted to make a um, endoskeleton Terminator style robot in Fallout. And I'm like, that doesn't fit. That's our retro futurism is more Robbie the robot, more large, clunky, mechanical robot, not kind of thin endoskeleton, you know, smooth moving robot. So that kind of critique would tell people, oh, I understand what we're what we're aiming for and why what I did doesn't get there, and then go back and do better work. I think when when that happens, people get encouraged to do things. If anybody ever goes out of their lane and gets really unconstructive comments, they often don't even know it's unconstructive. They just shut down and don't want to leave their lane again. So you have to have an environment that's supportive in that way for people to really blossom and feel like they can contribute to a lot of channels in the game. Yeah, I guess it's like that open-mindedness and also uh, openness towards trust, transparency and togetherness. And trust is an interesting thing within building teams. Yeah. It, when people understand that the reason you're giving them feedback is you want something they've done that's good, you want it to be better, that's a lot different than them thinking all feedback is just, oh, they didn't like what I did. No, I like what you did, but we have to make these changes, and you're capable of doing that. And then your next one will be even better. Once people get into that rhythm, everybody's productivity goes up, the morale goes up, they start contributing more in the game. And also, once people put things in the game and see it in there... They feel kind of ownership over it. So they want it to be really good and they they fix any problems that arise with it. I've seen that happen over and over again, where that kind of people take their own ownership and pride in some part of the game that it feels like that's mine. That's my I I had that idea. I did it. It's in there. I'm gonna make sure it's super good. I never want anyone to think that this was a bad thing. And that that kind of pride and passion for what you do just elevates the game to another level. Yeah, definitely. I think it's um, it's also the implication and impact that comes across to the players because, like, you can tell where, like, one of the challenges within the games industry is like that. Um, it's maybe it's it's evolving over time, but that crunch period about when a game was when a game has to come out versus when a game yeah. should come out, and yeah. at the end of the day, not only is it important for teams to feel trusted and empowered to create better products, which creates better games for the players. But equally, um, I'd be interested to walk over some of the, the industry's historic challenges and what how you've kind of faced them and also your responses to them. Um, crunch is one. Um, we've long been in an industry of crunch. Part of it has gotten better because we've gotten better methodology in production. I've worked with some really good producers in the last 10 years. They've gotten better at estimating. They've gotten better at getting ahead of choke points, recognizing them and getting additional people manpower to fix that. But 
one thing that always has remained is games are not making games is not a science. It's as much an art as a science. And I've never seen anyone be able to methodologize, methodologize art. You, you can't tell a designer, I need you to have your five brilliant ideas by the end of the month. That just is not going to work. Um, I, ironically, I've had people both ask me, what is the big hook of your game that we've never seen in any other game? And then when I tell them, they go, geez, we've never seen that in any other game. Are you sure it's going to work? I'm, I'm concerned about this. This is a big risk. And I was like, uh, I'm, I'm confused. You, you asked me for the original hook, and now you're complaining that the hook is original. This is where I'm. This is where games as art often comes to a head because you're being funded somehow. Either your company has its own funds, or you've got investor funds, or publishers paying you to do it. And at some point, they want a product. In the old days, you when it was a physical product, you had to way in advance um, arrange for shelf space, ads in print magazines. Those things had to be done months in advance. So often, you know, in the summer, it like we have to commit now to Christmas, a Christmas release. And Christmas release meant no later than sometime in October. Now with digital um, distribution and ads being online, that window is much shorter, but it still exists. At some point you have to commit, okay, the game is good enough. We think all the bugs will be out or enough bugs. We're, it's ready to ship at this point. I've seen people dislike that and they're like, well, we need more time. And I agree, but I worked with a technical director at Interplay, Jay Patel, and he had a wonderful saying, no game is finished, they're only shipped. Because I'd probably still be working on Fallout today if I was kept getting paid to do so, because you always think of things that would be new features, you, you notice a bug that wants to be fixed, something that should be balanced. You just keep doing it forever. Um, and I think eventually you just have to declare something done, warts and all. Because sometimes people like the warts. There are some things that I view as major bugs and balance issues and fallout that I've had people tell you, that's my favorite part. <laughs> so, okay. Um, I, I love how much fans can be very passionate about games. And that's one of it. That's one thing that I love is how passionate they get about the whole game, even things you didn't intend. But it's it's difficult for a lot of people to accept that they're doing art as much as they're doing technology and you know predictable fixed length tasks. And art just can't be. I don't think art can be put in a box and predicted the way most people wish it could be. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, when you are working towards set deadlines, there's, um, yeah, there's an increased, uh, there's an increased tempo, there's an increased focus, there's an increased stress levels. Um, maybe talk to me a little bit about the realities of, I guess, like mental wellness and elements such as, such as that within the games industry, because there's, you know, a lot of people looking into the industry can look at, at the games that we produce and go, this this is fantastic, I, I want to work in the industry. But like with ev every industry, they've got their um, 
skeletons to, to bear. And I think that the good thing about the industry now, it's evolving. It's taken an understanding about some of the historical challenges that they faced and they're trying to like literally pivot into those challenges, lean into those challenges to kind of come out the other side with remediations. But it has actually caused some issues previously. So, Yeah, I mean, we talked about crunch and just making games can be very stressful. Um, I've talked about that a lot. One thing I've actually done recently is I recently just did a, a video on my channel basically talking about the fun part of Troika because I was worried that I looked back at me talking about Arcanum and Temple and Bloodlines and it all sounded so stressful and crazy. And like, you know, I had people commenting, why did you even do this? Why would you subject yourself to this? And I had to do a whole talk about how fun it is too in the industry. Um, you have camaraderie like you hardly see anywhere else. Um, people who, you have a diverse group of people but they all share certain kinds of interests. So it's fun because you learn about a lot of things from other people, um, but you all, you have this shared interest in games. And I think the stress comes from eventually this fun idea and you having fun putting it together and all the brainstorming and all that, it has to come together into a product. Ultimately, the game industry makes products and it is very stressful getting that product in a shippable state. And there's a lot of people who feel differently about different parts of the game. Another phrase somebody used to tell me at Carbine was perfect is the enemy of good. And he said that in the sense of you can spend so much time trying to make something perfect and you never will that other things suffer because you spend so much time tinkering on this one thing. But I've seen the reverse happen where people in that mindset think, well, this is good enough. They'll look at something that's okay and go, it's good enough. Perfect's the enemy of good. And you're like, well, this could still be better. We could both spend a little bit of time in this and, and you know, the game shouldn't crash as much. The save game shouldn't become corrupted. That, that We could do better than that. And there's just so much stress on even agreeing what should be fixed, agreeing how long it should take, agreeing when something's good enough. Like we can stop now, it's good enough. The, the difficulty in getting everybody on the same page on all of those things just causes an intense amount of stress. And when you get near the end of a project cycle where it has to turn into a product, meaning time is now fixed, you have a fixed amount of time, that's where stress can really become off the scale and people have different ways of dealing with that stress and some people go through one or two product cycles and leave the industry that's why it's very common for people to be in the industry for about five years and then they leave because they just can't take this kind of recurring stress cycle in their life we've lost some really good people that way who've gone to do other things Uh, it's interesting. I, there's so much. There's so much of cause of stress, and so many things we talk about. I know people who think passionate people are the cause of the stress, and I've been trying to figure out how to talk about this because it's, on the one hand, passion sometimes has been used as a dirty word. Like these passionate people are causing work for other people. They keep throwing features in. They keep changing things, and it's causing work for other people. At the same time, I'm worried about. If the industry really becomes a nine to five industry, I'm worried what that means. I don't want games to be 100% products. 
I don't want them to come off an assembly line. I don't want somebody to go, this game is going to be 20% multiplayer. It's going to have loot boxes. It's going to have, you know, transactions, uh, microtransactions. Here's the genre. Here's the setting. Here's the mechanics. Make game now. I, I'm worried it might turn into that and become a little soulless. But we do pay for soul with stress and time and money. So it's it's kind of a balancing act. It's not one is good and the other's bad. It's there's got to be a balance between all of these things. So yeah, talking about that kind of risk of I guess like content becoming bland and repetitive and stale. How do we pivot against that? Like in my in my eyes, I think that it goes back to two two part. You you've got to have the people in there that still have the passion that still want to stay after hours to have input into something that might change the landscape of the industry as a whole in the same way that fallout did and then at the other side of it i think that like storytelling it's so key like we see some stories now and i pick up games and i put them down in minutes because i'm bored i i want to I want games to move me. And I'm not the only player that wants this. It's it's players, it's people with industry, it's everybody wants that. If you're really going to use games as a cultural force, like when the same same applies in the challenges of the movie industry. When we look at some of the movies that we see at the moment, it's like a regurgitation of big franchises and you know that did well, therefore we'll have a sequel, therefore we'll we'll, we'll turn yeah. it into a trilogy. And you know. We can see at, at the moment one of the one of the things that concerns me a little bit is I'm a I'm a big um, The Last of Us fan, so looking at The Last of Us, I want them to finish that as a trilogy. Um, I want them to like I know they're looking into these five new characters and protagonists that they're obviously going to look for further games down the line, but they, it has the opportunity to be finished out as the perfect trilogy. I wrote a LinkedIn post about this the other day about this is how I would finish it and why and you know, you look at the cross-pollination of content, like the best episode from season one of the HBO season was um, episode three. It, I've not seen anything that powerful in a long period of time in respect to real human connection. And it moved me, like me and my wife were sat watching it and it was some of the best bit of TV I've seen in a long, long, long time. And the same goes for The, the Last of Us, like the first two games were fantastic. and. I just think, you know, the industry as a whole has a question to ask in respect to um, that duty of care that they have for the players in the deliverables. And it isn't about profit and it isn't about solely perpetuating um, franchise for the sake of, um, you know, bottom line. It is about why do you create games in the first part of the situation? And, you know, like we create games, we play games because we want that level of depth, that level of complexity and that level of connection and equally that level of emotion. That's like my take on it. I'd love to get yours. I agree. I, I'm the same way with now with games as I am with books and movies. There are so many being made, so many sequels being made that I, I, some, I used to always finish every book I picked up. And starting about five years ago, I found myself starting books and not finishing them. And it's because there are too many good books. I, I can't waste my time with this one. 
it's it's just not it's not resonating with me. I'm just going to move on. And in some ways, I'm the wrong person to ask because I've walked away from so many sequels. Working on sequels, I walked away from Fallout Two. I was working on Pillars of Eternity Two when the opportunity to do the Outer Worlds came up, and I did that. But as soon as Outer Worlds was done, I even told them before it was done, I'm gonna semi-retire and move away when this is over. I'm still working on it as as a consultant, but it's been picked up by other people that the the baton, so to speak. And I'm okay with that because that's what I've done my whole career. I like I love making the original IPs because I believe that's I like exploring new stuff. I like new stories, new characters, new situations. We could explore things in Fallout that couldn't be explored in a fantasy game. And then, but then when I wanted to make a fantasy game, my next one was a fantasy game, Arcanum. I mixed magic and tech. I wanted to explore what would happen if an industrial revolution happened to a bunch of elves and orcs and humans and dwarves. You don't hear, you don't see that kind of thing in the Lord of the Rings. Those are the kind of stories I want to tell. It's, I often look at a genre and go, what hasn't been done yet in that? I, and in a sense, sequels bore me. And I hate saying that because I hate talking negative about any games, but there are a lot of sequels out there that I'm a little upset because the first game was so good and I did buy the second and it was either more the same or it went off in a direction that didn't resonate with me. And then I rarely buy the third or the fourth. And there are so many games that follow this pattern and I don't want to name them, but almost all the books on my shelf are one-offs. I liked... um, Roger Zelazny's Lord of Light is one of my favorite books of his. He also wrote the Chronicles of Amber. I liked the first one and the second one, and then it kind of got less good. I'm like that with everything, movies, everything. I want people to challenge themselves in telling new stories. And I want audiences to want those new stories. Because part of the reason we're getting sequels, people will buy them. So publishers aren't stupid. They would stop making sequels tomorrow if everybody stopped buying them. So obviously there's an audience out there that's like, oh, you know, there's Joel from Last of Us. I want to go on another adventure with him. And then another one. And then another one. Um, I forget what we're up to in Call of Duty and Uncharted and Tomb Raider. People like those characters and they just want more and more and more. I want new stories and it's hard to tell new stories with the same character. I think Raiders of the Lost Ark might be teaching us that. Um, or Indiana Jones. Um, eventually, you've told all the stories you can tell with this character. I, Because I, I value the storytelling more than the franchise, that's why I tend to move on. Um, it's hard to get the opportunity to make a new IP as it is. So when you get that opportunity, I recommend you take it. It's safer to stay in sequels. Yeah, I was going to say. Certainly that's why publishers like it. But from a money perspective, like let it's it's worthwhile highlighting here a compare and contrast between the early days and how much a typical IP franchise or new new piece of content costs. Yeah, because new, it takes so much money now to make a game. Publishers get more and more risk averse, so we see more sequels. Um, the same thing with movies, it's harder to get people into the seats. So if they have some idea of what they're going to be presented with, I think Marvel 
has done a really good job saying, hey, this is what a Marvel movie feels like. Now you can see the Hulk in it. Now you can see the Thor in it. Now you can see Iron Man. Now you can see them all at once. That's great. But just like zombie movies, I think superhero movies are getting a little tapped out. And I'm ready for more stories. But I'm not going to get them until everyone out there votes with their dollars and if you would rather, if, if you pay more, to, if you more people go see a new movie than go see sequels, we're getting a lot more mo- new movies. But there aren't enough people, I think, sometimes who vote with their dollars that way. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection. Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Yeah, definitely. I'm interested at this point to kind of ask you the question of like the growing trend of players influencing like game narratives. And I guess like we've talked a bit about our emotional investment in it, but how this ultimately should and will contribute to the landscape going forward. Um, And I guess like comparing between that kind of we're in an age of consolidation where you just see these massive M&As taking place all the time. So how does it, what's the compare and contrast between storytelling at a large publisher versus a small indie studio? And how will this resonate in respect to the, the narratives that are going to ultimately be told? I think there's, there's two big differences. Large publishers are much more risk averse. Uh, they're putting a lot more money into it. I see a lot more innovation in the indie space. I've said that a lot. I often see indies come out and then I see bigger games with those features after an indies kind of explored it. But I think also people are getting, gamers are getting way more involved in games. They're 
giving feedback, they know where to give their feedback. Um, we didn't really have much, we didn't have any community management in the 80s, none. There was a little bit in the 90s, but most of that was you'd put up a web page for your game and there'd be a place for people to ask you questions. Now it's very standard to have forums for every game you make. There's rich discussions going on in those forums by fans. There's often requests, borderline demands for certain features. And I love the exuberance that fans have. I think sometimes they ask for things that they don't really want. Um, they ask for features or things that would, if put into the game, maybe get in the way of them having as much fun as they could have. I see that for everything from new games have less challenge than older games. Um, it, it was, we were encouraged to do that, to get more casual people into the games. But that means that people who have been in the genre longer are complaining about things like, when I get a quest, I'm shown exactly where to go. I don't have to explore. I don't even have to explore to get the quest. I walk into town and everyone with a quest has an explanation point over their head. For older RPG players, they find that to be a little handholdy, a little, hey, you've gotten rid of all the challenge. You've gotten rid of even the fun of exploring. I know exactly who to go to or where to go. And But new players are like, oh, good. I finally understand how to play this game now. I know what the rules are. I know where to go and what to do. Those are, those things fight. Um, they fight those, those goals are contradictory. They fight each other out in publishers and indies and among fans. There are fans that they want contradictory things. So it's hard deciding as a game designer who you want to serve. Um, if you serve casual players, I believe you will sell more. If you push the boundary, which is very risky, you might find a whole new genre or play style or uh, demographic and make a lot of money, or you may fail and lose money. Or if you're an indie, a big chunk of your time and money that you can't afford to lose. So. I understand that pressure that's going on in the industry right now, and it's coming from not just publishers. Fans are putting a lot of pressure on game developers in antithetical ways. Fans want different things, and they can't all be served by one game. So that is causing additional stress. <laughs> Definitely. I think it's it's also a point of a, a a vision, yeah. Like from a community stance, I think that it's it's only going to be of benefit to the industry as a whole, where we give more of an opportunity to allow players to voice their thoughts, concerns, inputs, ideas, because that kind of whole landscape of larger volumes of data should ultimately, in the long term. Um, result in better quality games that are not necessarily like niche but more targeted to what the gamers really want at this point in time and you know you, you're not going to get every single gamer to provide that input but I think one of the things that I did like when I was at EA in the early days of like influencers for example when we saw a lot of people playing FIFA and we were looking to 
iterate some of our games. Like we were bringing people in house to give direct feedback on the early day in the sandbox phase and throughout the whole game development life cycle. And I think that that is almost back to what you said before about that that self that element of pride and, and accomplishment. Like when the players feel that they're being listened to, then it harbors a community that is built on trust, transparency and togetherness. And, you know, you don't lose people when you have that foundation, you, you galvanize people and um, they're largely going to stay with you through the course. But then equally to that, I think when it comes to articulating a specific narrative or what focus may be about a specific title or franchise, there has to be a point of vision or an element of leadership in there to shape that future, to um, shape, the, shape the, the journey to delivering that piece of work. And I think that, um, yeah, like I'd, I'd love to gauge your view on like the advantages of, I guess, like a strong shared vision and also like leaders focused more so on the future rather than just simply like past mistakes. Well, I've, I've talked a lot about, I love brainstorming. I love getting together with people and discussing ideas and really chewing on them, which means everybody who comes to the meeting has to agree when an idea gets thrown out there, we're going to say what we like and what we don't like. How can we make it better? Um, once people usually see how my brainstorming sessions work, I think they like it. Um, it can be a while. It takes some people some time to open up. That's where having a big diverse group of people really helps. Um, a bunch of passionate people, people have things they really care about and really like seeing in games. Um, but I told somebody recently, I don't, there's a time to have the group think and there's time to have the vision. Early in the game is a good time for brainstorming and group think and discussion and changing course. Once you decide on a course, unless problems, big problems arise, you should at that point start narrowing the vision and making sure everybody's going in the same direction. That's something that I've especially seen people get confused and they're like, well, we, it was all, it was, it was by committee now. Why isn't it by committee later? And I try to describe to someone that if you're going on a road trip with a group of people, you all talk, you all look at maps and look at places you want to go and make decisions. But when you're actually driving there, there aren't four pairs of hands on the wheel <laughs> making moment to moment decisions for that car. You will crash. So that's why I, I, I've often said what sounds like contradictory things. Like I love brainstorming. I love having everybody involved. I love multidisciplinary workers on the game. But at some point you decide what that game is and you're making that game. And you're past the point of, hey, let's, let's have another meeting where we discuss whether or not this feature is even going in. And that's where I get worried because by the time you announce a game, when fans at that point say, well, I hope it has X, Y, and Z, it's kind of too late to add those at that stage. Um, a good time to do that would be, okay, on the sequel to this game, we're considered doing that. Um, I say that hypothetically since I don't work on a lot of sequels, but like Fallout gave me a lot of ideas of what I would like to do in Arcanum. And a lot of those came from fans when they talked about what they liked and what they didn't like. Um, and then that that 
factored into Outer Worlds. And every time I try to do a new RPG, I try to put new features in that I've been thinking about tempered by what fans said they liked and didn't like doing in my previous games. So I love listening to what fans say, but I always filter that through kind of my experience of what I think will work and won't, what won't work. The same way if someone went into a restaurant, they get to order the meal. They know that they like chicken and not fish, but I don't think they should go back in the, in the restaurant and tell the chef, okay, flip the fish over now. Okay, put a little more paprika on it. No, a little more. No, that's too much. You don't want that happening either. So it's a, it's a balanced approach to, to that kind of input and feedback. And I guess like the, the knock-on effect of that is you can either galvanize a workforce or you can result in having a workforce that's largely quite unhappy. Um, so when we talk about, yeah, like it's maybe a good time to dive into like the dual face and faceted nature of this, this uh, sorry. It's maybe a good time to dive into the dual faceted nature of dis dissatisfaction in gaming. There aren't a lot of unhappy people out there. Doesn't it seem that way? Yeah, it's, it's crazy. There's unhappy developers. There's unhappy game fans. Um, I think there's a lot of reasons. I, I talk a lot with people I work with, and I'm like, oh, you're finally in that position you wanted, and you're happy with your pay, and you bought that car you liked, and everything seems to be good. Why aren't you happy? And they're like, I don't know why I'm not happy. <laughs> um, it's tough to figure out. Part of it, I think, when I touched on earlier, I think sometimes people want ask for things that they don't really want. Um, not to infantilize people, but I think it's sometimes it's like children and they love candy. So they're like, why can't we just have candy for dinner? That'd be awesome. And then two hours later, they have a horrible stomach ache and they're like, I, I don't understand why is why do I have a stomach ache? I, I love candy. So it's sometimes I don't think people know what it is they want or how to ask for what they want. So they either are playing games that they don't really enjoy, but they're playing them because some sense of obligation, like this game is based on a book I read, or I love RPGs, this is an RPG, I must force myself to play this and love it. I, I wish people would be more willing to, I, I played this game, it's like what you said, I played this game for an hour, I don't like it, I'm moving on to another game. I don't have to go online and rant for weeks about how much I hate this game because that's not going to make me any happier. It's, it really isn't. It's just going to make me enter a cycle of unhappiness with a group. Um, and then similarly, I think people who are making games sometimes feel like, well, I told myself I wanted to write uh, this kind of dialogue and this kind of game, and now I'm doing it. I'm fulfilled. I should be super happy right now. Part of it is maybe that's not what you like doing. Part of it is, well, you've done it. You've done it. And you're not growing. You're not expanding your, your job. Um, there could be a lot of reasons you're unsatisfied. But people have trouble reflecting on it themselves. It's like when I told you failure was a better teacher than success. I didn't learn what I was good and bad at when I was successful. I learned what I was good and bad at when my games came out and did poorly. And people said, well, this part was good, but this part was terrible. Rather than, it was a great game. I loved it. That doesn't teach me anything. Yeah, I think it's um, it's in the line of 
a pursuit of happiness. So if you look at what a pursuit is, it's a journey. And it's that understanding that, you know, you it's not about like it's to coin that horrible phrase that it's a journey, not a destination. It's like if you want to make games, go make games, but that's not the end point. Like the end point is the who you are in a year's time and what have you done in a year and then who you are in another year's time and like that constant journey the understanding that like life is an infinite game and we can evolve we can merge into new roles change industries work with different people do lots of cool things but there's not an end point the end point isn't the satisfaction the satisfaction is what you learn what you do throughout that evolution and real deep happiness is that like I've always thought about it from a stoic perspective that mobility just like the calm understanding of the storm around you and the fact that you know like I came across I think Mel Robbins said something about our chances of being on like being born um she she did a TED talk on this and she talked about being born was like one in four hundred trillion to one chance or something crazy and that's true like if, if you start looking at things like that under the lens at how lucky we are to be here even the most big huge humongous thing that you're worried about and it's it's demotivating you and you are unhappy or you feel that you're not being heard like understand severity like the severity of the issue it's like are you healthy do are you safe and are you learning like if you, that you've got to kind of take things back in, in my view to the very foundations and start looking at things and go well actually what can I implement in my day-to-day -day life that I'm going to take happiness from and it doesn't have to be a job like a job is just part of something and like yeah it's it's the essence of who we really are and like that that intertwines with what our hobbies are what we do with family what we do with friends that finding a balance because i think you know from work-life balance perspective the the risk that i see at the moment is um you, you mentioned about a nine to five um earlier and this may come across to people as as being counterproductive but like i don't think if you really want to learn and you really want to evolve and you really want to grow and that is an underlying motive for you. It is definitely is for me. Then you can't put it in the limitations of nine to five. You have to keep on going. Like there's no time. Like you, you basically you are whatever you're doing, whatever you're consuming, whatever you're working on. Like if it's bringing you happiness, then the limitations of time is of, of a nine to five structure. For me, it doesn't work for me. But I don't know like your views on it because. I think, yeah, happiness is, it, it's a journey. And if, if you really want to embrace that journey, then it's its an infinite space of time that you have to em embrace it within. It's not like a, a structured, this is this is when I'm going to be happy. This is when I'm going to do all my amazing work. It's like, you need the ebbs and flows. Like, that's my take. What's, what's well, your... and that's why I've been thinking about this a lot because I know people who passion is now a dirty word. And if you work past nine to five, there's a lot of people who are like, you're, they try to convince you you're being taken advantage of and you're forcing other your colleagues to be taken advantage of because you're putting in more work so either they have to to keep up with you or they have to to deal with the stuff you put in um 
And it's strange because it's exactly what you said. I I loved school. I was one of those kids that I liked. I liked elementary school. I liked high school. I liked college. I liked college so much I wanted to keep doing it. So I went to grad school. Um, and it was only in grad school where I, I, I got my master's. I was working on my PhD. And I'm like, yeah, I think I've gotten out of this everything I want to get out of it. And so I just went right into games. And everybody was surprised and tried to convince me not to do it. My, like, my thesis professor, uh, all my friends, other students, my family, everyone except my mom. My mom was like, I figured you'd back into games. You really like that. And I think that's when I realized you should do what you like. If what you're doing isn't what you like, if you do it for money, then get yourself a nine to five job. If you like doing something, you don't have to be taken advantage of and you can try to get paid fairly. But I used to talk like at Interplay and Troika, you could come after hours and there'd always be people there. Sometimes they were working, sometimes they were playing games, or board games, video games. They just, they liked it so much making games and playing games that that was a big part of their life. And if you had told any of those people, it's after five, you're being taken advantage of. They'd be like, they'd laugh at you and go back doing whatever it was they were doing. And I think, as you said, sometimes when you want to learn things and push yourself farther and you're really loving and enjoying what you're doing, there is no nine to five. There is no weekend. It's if you have a great idea, you want to play with it. You want to explore it. I know writers do that. Actors do that. The idea that a writer could be a nine to five job, I think is funny. Um, if you have a good idea on Saturday, what do you do? You'd be like, but from a writing perspective, like, you know, I, I've written stuff and when it comes to getting stuff published, like I'm never going to give it to a publisher until I'm ready, ready for it. So I'll often lay down a foundation of this is, this is how I write. This is what I'm interested in. And, like likewise to how you came up with um, your how you came up with the premise of Fallout, like you had a multitude of different impacting factors from movies, books, etc., that you draw into that narrative. And but it needs you like it needs that period of um, massaging where basically you can write down a first draft and then you walk away from it and then you you know take the dog out for a walk or something and have a think. And largely in that quiet space, you can then you know, you get another idea and it'll pop into like add and heighten to that story and you can go back and start writing and then you continue to build and build and build upon that. And I think that, you know, that's that's speaking from my own experiences. That's speaking from me, how I like to work. I like to work because I like to work. I, I take joy from the stuff that I do and it, it gives me happiness. I, from an expectation perspective, I think the the biggest thing that I would say to anybody from the perspective of a nine to five is you can work work to your own set view on how you want to like work around a uh, yeah ultimately how you want to work because you do get in every industry right these guys and they'll basically just rock up at really early do absolutely nothing but it looks like they're busy but they're, they're not doing anything and then they're kind of their their earliest they leave the last and you know like at some point you've got to assess that performance you don't assess people on based on time you've got to assess it on performance and I think you know when you give people the freedom to decide I, I personally think you get the 
more engaged, more motivated, more interesting people because that you know they they can build in what the the learnings they can build in the time that they want to take from a specific task. Like I know if I tried to stick all the stuff I do in a nine to five calendar, man, I, I just wouldn't be able to do it. That's why I work all the time because I try and find space for with my wife and kids. I try and sp find space going to the gym, but then equally I'm classifying this as work. It's my life is work. Uh, so I think that you've got to, you've got to tailor it and, um, you know, I, I do think that this open dialogue, I would prefer to see more people embrace because it does have detrimental effects on happiness. If you look at, at the moment, there's epidemics of isolation and there's issues in respect to, I remember Joe Rogan talking about, um, I can't remember the quote, I'll have to dig it up, but like he was talking about men living in um, silent, suffering or something like that there's a there's a talk about it I'll, I'll link it in the comments and you know like i think over overall we just a, a more open dialogue as to the challenges that we face i think if you look at things at the moment like we've talked before about social media and stuff if you look at, at there it's all positive 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 and it's it's not a true reflection on, on what people are living and what they're experiencing and I'm not saying that it should be all doom and gloom because life is not doom and gloom. Life is a beautiful opportunity. But then equally, like that, that truth, that honesty. And I think when you can take into a workplace that this is how I like to work um, and the employer gives you the freedom to work in that way, then nine times out of 10, you're not going to leave that company. You're going to do your best work there and, and continue because you feel trusted, you feel empowered and you feel motivated to, to be there. Um, that's again my views. I'd love to get no, yours. I agree. I when people say, "How did you do this for so long?" When so many people burn out, part of it was because this is what I like doing. I get joy out of just doing it. I'm that's people are always surprised. I'm semi-retired. I only work part time, but when I'm not working, I often have Unreal or Unity up, and I'm making little toy games, just myself for fun. I don't intend to ship them. I'm not making them for any fans. I'm not making them for a publisher. I just like making them. And they're, they're in all states of disrepair and half-baked and because I'm just having fun. I'm not, there's no goal. There's no destination. This is pure journey. I'm wandering around the space of video games. I've got like six projects in Unity right now, all in various states of disarray that I just have fun with. And um, I think that's important. For, for people to do. Um, I, I think if you get into an industry and you're not doing it out of enjoyment, it's a career and not there's no sense of enjoyment, eventually you are going to burn out. But it's, it's tough to tell people how to avoid that. Um, I, I know some people feel like they don't have a choice, that they have to do something they don't want to do to earn money so they can have money to do things on the weekend when they want to. And that's perfectly fine as long as you don't put, you don't lean on your career and say, I expect more from you than this paycheck. If, if you're literally treating your career as a paycheck, don't expect any more from that. Get your enjoyment somewhere else. But I figured if I was going to spend a lot of time doing something, it might as well be doing something I like. And... 
the other thing too is I've learned how to enjoy helping other people do what they do better. Um, this a producer I worked with, Eric DeMille, he, the nicest thing he ever said to me, he called me a force multiplier. He said, he doesn't even know. He goes, I don't even know how you do it sometimes, but I put you on a team and the team gets better. And I tried to explain to him what I was doing. Like, I can't write dialogue, but I can think of characters that would be good for the game. But then I have to hand them off to somebody who's much better than me. Um, on Arcanum, when the level designers would get stuck, they're like, we can't think of any more quests to do. I'm like, that's all I do is a D&D GM is make quests. So I made a, a, a document with 100 quests. It was just lines of quest ideas. And I threw it into our Perforce, and I said, "When you when you wanna when you get stuck, pull it out, find one you like, strike it through, and check it back in, so no one else uses it, and then go off and make that quest." And people made a lot of quests that way. Whenever they got stuck, they'd look one up on my document, and they're like, "Well, why aren't you making these?" I'm like, "Have you seen the ones I've made? I'm not good at it. I'm I I can literally describe a quest to someone, and they go off and make something ten times better than what I would have made, and then we're both happy. He made something really cool. Everyone's telling him how good it is." I'm like, wow, I, all my, a lot of my ideas are getting into the game. And at some point, you don't even need credit for these things. It's just when Fallout was near shipping, I played it start to finish three times. When Outer Worlds got near shipping, I played it start to finish 16 times. I had fun playing these games. Um, that's, the, that's the enjoyment is the journey. Once a game ships, I have this weird mix of happiness, relief, and sadness every time a game ships and i'm sad because i won't be working on it anymore it's gone it's done it's it's baked so then i'm happy to work on something new i'm always like that with um <laughs> like from a narrative perspective i have documents upon documents of books that i've started and things that i'm thinking about doing loads and loads on game narratives um i remember speaking to a friend of mine about game narratives and it's funny how like things like you know D dungeons and dragons how that shaped so many people's perspectives in the games industry and i'm intrigued as well as to you know like nostalgia is a big part for the types of stories that i write it's it not it's not necessarily looking at things back Fondly. It's more so the ability to use writing in a way that when it's done well, like writing doesn't just move you, it, it logs to your memory. And that when you are able to log words to a memory, it resonates with experiences, with music, with everything that you were listening to that I'm doing at that point in time. And it's it just gives you those nice reminders. And that's back to what we were saying before about like gaming is a cultural force. I get the same with movies. I get the same with music. I get the same with books. Um, I can pick up a book and I'll remember where I was, what I was doing and, and um, what I was listening to and what in some days, what day it was. Um, and I think that that ability to you know, really delve deeply into people's inner consciousness. I think that that's that's the beauty of games. It's it's the connective factor. We we talked about community, but that deep connection, um, then that lasting resonance that you get from from gaming, that's the thing that's really powerful. And when you start then talking to people that were from the era of playing like Dungeons and Dragons, that you know, 
my friend that I was talking about, he was actually up in Newcastle um, at one of at, at like a get together to play Dungeons Dragons all weekend. So, like this is um, it's yeah, it's just it, there's there's a lot more depth to to I think the industry then is really being explored at this point in time. I think that in some cases, likewise to what we said, the limiting factor is it's it's become up it's become too system focused that this is, you know, we'll, we'll deliver that game to get that revenue to hit that quarter and then we'll move on. But when you're really able to look at, at the depth of a narrative in a way that you can really create community, you can move people, you can log into their memory and like the ultimate why into why you're creating a game, it's like the legacy that you can drive through that um, in the same way as the the impact and legacy you had with Fallout, like that it's the games that will go down in history. And that's maybe like a factor I'd like to see more from like studio leadership is just more the more ambition because we haven't talked about it yet, but we'll go into it. Like there's like the AI re renaissance in gaming, like there's this huge scope of opportunity in respect to tech um, for, you know, the utilization of AI, generative AI and, and yeah, like, um, what's your views on the landscape at the moment and the opportunities that lie lie ahead? Well, I say I know why people are nervous. People are worried about what it means for their job. If their job is to produce certain things that AIs can produce faster or better, that's a little scary. But I think AI in general is just going to be an amazing tool to let us make games we otherwise couldn't have made, um, either because they were too expensive or too large in scope or you were trying to do too many features or tell too expansive a story, whatever, whatever the big thing is you were trying to do, I think AI tools let you do that, whether it's procedural generation or AI generating some of the art, some of the voice, some of the music. Um, I look forward to these things because people keep exploring things like, I have a VR headset. I love it. I use it multiple times a week. I don't think that's where the future is, though, because every time I take it off, it's almost a relief to get that off of my head. And where I really think things are going is, since I wear glasses anyway, I want augmented reality. I want to be out walking my dog and have my text messages in here. Or when I see that neighbor that I only see about three times a year, it puts his name above his head in the world so i can say it because i can never remember his name <laughs> or i'm i moved up to seattle three years ago and i didn't know where i was going i wish i could drive and see arrows in the road and signs in the road and not have to be looking down at my dash mounted you know map system there's so much ar will do for your general life that I think the, what it can do for games is just absolutely amazing. I would love to play board games with people who aren't physically present with me. But when I look at my dining room table, I see the board game or the tabletop RPG that they're seeing on their dining room table. And I can see them in the chair across for me, even though they're not really there. That's what I want to do. I don't want to be sitting with a giant helmet on me, kicking the dog and tripping over the Ottoman because it's trying to encase me in a world. I want... I want computer gaming elements to be injected in my real world. So 
so I can have, ex- when you talked about people want really good stories, I almost expanded people want really good experiences. Stories are part of that. But I can think of a lot of experiences I had that had no narrative component, but they moved me. A good concert would do that for someone. I, I want that experience. And I think AR can do it. I'm just not sure technologically we're there yet. Yeah, I think that's why Apple was so good in respect to their recent launch. Like they very clearly differentiate differentiate themselves away from yeah, like what a lot of people had coined at the time in respect to the metaverse. And I think that yeah, in the in the grand scheme of things, I know it's expensive at the moment, like yeah. three and a half K. But um in the grand scheme of things, that has everybody talks about AI having the same impact as what the internet had, for example. But I think that those, um, the the scope of what Apple are working towards at the moment, that has real implications to, to not just gaming, but our, our life in general as as to, yeah, like ultimately. I think if, if Apple makes something that's more like Google glasses, Google glasses, I think was the right direction. Google sometimes gives up too easily on its hardware and software. Um, kind of aggravates me that they make something and then just stop supporting it after a few years. Apple, when they go in, they go in all the way. So I'm sure these Apple, that Apple headset will eventually turn into something better. I don't really think it's the right step yet. But if anybody gets it, I think Apple will get it. And then suddenly we'll all have it. And it will just be seen as normal. We're all walking around with our Apple glasses. And when I talk to you, I may glance above your head occasionally. It'll remind me, oh, don't forget you have an appointment in 20 minutes or don't forget to ask about his wife, insert name here. You know, it's just things that it will, I almost call it social lubrication. It it will make all parts of our life easier. So... I just, I look forward to that. I look forward to people going, I can't believe when you went to the grocery store, you looked for the price tag on a little piece of paper glued to the shelf that you just couldn't pick it up and the price appeared on it. Okay. Oh, you couldn't just look in your cart and see what the total is? How did you know how much money you were spending? You guessed. I, in 10 or 15 years, there, I think there are going to be kids who can't believe how we lived. So disconnected from what they view as a real information stream. And they're going to have experiences we can't even imagine. I actually don't think it's going to be even a 10 to 15 years. Like if you look at the evolution of tech that we've seen in the last year alone, it's like it's the the cycles are dramatically shorter. So, you know, even when you look at the evolution of the games industry from the 80s to year to date, like the games that we're going to be playing in two years time, literally they're, they're not really in. In thought at this point in time i think we've got yeah like technology is advancing at such a pace it's it's up to us i think to catch up and it's you know like we're it's we're in a unique time where i think we're only really limited by our i would say like ambition and um aspirations i think because i hope the- you're right i i've seen them say vr is just a few years away from being everywhere for a decade or more, electric cars. People are like, oh, everything's going to be electric. And I know someone who bought an electric car in 99. And I have an electric car for the last three years, but most of the people on my block 
have internal combustion engines. But it's where it goes back to what you said before. When when it be, when it when tech makes your life easier, that's when tech com comes in, and that's when tech allows the opportunity for mass adoption. Um, when it, you know, we see at the moment with various different cycles of the social wars. So we see like Threads going up against Twitter, and then Threads having a drop off in its user base, and people are questioning why. It's because it's not making people's life easier. Like they've taken people over from Instagram, which is a largely visual audience base, and you're putting them onto a text-based system to compete against Twitter, and they are naturally going to gravitate back to the systems that worked for them previously until you allow systems that make your life easier, then yeah, like ultimately those products are not going to last. And I think that's the interesting fact. I, I just ultimately what the future holds, I'm, I'm really intrigued. I've got like three kids under three and by the time they're in their twenties, what the world will be, it's, yeah, it's not to be feared in my opinion, it's to be literally embraced. One thing I think about is like how these all will combine because I would love it if augmented reality glasses combined with AI, like those large language models and gaming to have literally people I would see in my house that don't actually exist, that are run by AI. Like my doctor comes over, it's an AI. Looks like she's standing right there, but it's not anybody in reality. A, tra uh, a health trainer comes over, a chef comes over and shows me how to cook things. These could all be things that could be really happening in a few years if people kind of set their minds to it. But, and I think it would be adopted by a lot of people because just that right there, it's like, I may, you may not want a chef, but I do, and enough people will that there will be an AI, AR chef that can appear in your house and show you how to cook. I think, I think people are thinking in old ways, like they're looking at a game and go, "How can I play a game in AR?" It's like I don't want, I don't want the AR to make a screen on the wall that I play video games with a controller. That's the old way of doing it. I want it to put objects in the world. I want my friends to be here with me, playing games with me. Um, that's new. That's yeah, we, we saw some of that with Pokemon. I don't remember when that kind of came out, and it, that was just a almost like it. You know, it was more of a a refined sandbox experience, but it was still essentially just playing with possibility. And yeah. I think you know that's that's the intriguing factor. Um, yeah, we, we're probably only limited by our imagination. And I think at this point in time, we've got so many different tools and techniques to like lean into that. Yeah, like the, the world is full of possibility. And that's that's the thing that, I, but then it, I'm intrigued because from one side is, it is full of possibility from, from the other side. And we see this with, with mobile and we see this with our current landscape. Like when people are, literally living in a digital world for too long then they feel disconnected to the people around them so i think that you have to go into this with a wider gaze to really understand well what implications would this have on human connection and how do we make sure that um a we don't leave people behind in this technological evolution but then b how do we understand the underlying problems that may come about and 
solutions that we may actually attribute to to these challenges that that's the these are the wider questions that i would hope that people that are at the forefront of industry at this point in time are really questioning because you know gaming's one part but literally in respect to the evolution of tech that we have at the moment like it has societal implications that we we probably aren't fully comprehending at this point in time like deep fakes and bits and pieces like that that's my my biggest fear is whenever in human history history we've made a new channel of communication it immediately gets used for advertising yeah. and eventually gets used for manipulation whether it's political manipulation social manipulation it eventually gets used by nefarious people to convince people how to vote how to act um often not in their best interest which always shocks me when people act against their own best interest because they have been told that that's what they should do but i'm worried because ar could easily be misused in those ways and uh i'm more worried about that <laughs> like how how do you accept ar into your life knowing that it will show you things that are in that look realistically in your world i'm not sure how to really address that point at this point in time yeah. i think that that's yeah it should be thought about it should be understood because i think when you do have a wider lens to challenge then you have an opportunity to really build upon the the foundations that we can see in front of us and i think that yeah that's the only chance that will get i think in respect to the evolution of tech and society as a whole the fact that you're going to see both sides of the both sides of the story really and i think um, if you have more of a comprehension about that then you have the ability to take in information and reflect upon it before making a conscious decision i think that largely what we've seen over the evolution at the last couple of years we saw in america we've seen it in the uk pick a, pick a country we've, we've seen um the rise of state of populism but ultimately that doesn't have to be the end goal we can change and that's that's the intriguing factor i didn't expect us to start talking about politics when we we're talking about this but it's it's how it impl it's how it impacts it's it's what wider than simply the narrative of the game and i think that's you know if you really want to understand the, the landscape of gaming for tomorrow you've got to really understand the evolutions of society as a whole like it, I, it impacted yeah. the games that you created it impacted the stories it impacted the narratives you know that's that's largely yeah with the these understand the tra the trajectory of where we're going um you have to have a wider gaze and an appreciation yeah. i've got such a long um length of games it is interesting and sometimes frustrating when people view my older games through the lens of today and they ask questions like well why didn't you let the player play more diversity of characters or um i had somebody go why did you name your company troika that's a russian name and i'm like okay this is in the late 90s it it it's weird to defend something you did 20 years ago against the lenses of today which is why when i think of things new technologies coming out i'm always like yeah where are they going to go and how are they going to be used and in 10 or 15 years how are people going to look back at them and go ah 
this was misused in this way. Um, I'm, in addition to AIs in AR, I'm worried about people filtering themselves because you already see people have video where they've manipulated how they look. And you talked about deep fakes. Those are the things that worry me because I want to approach this as how am I going to make entertainment with this new medium? Instead, I'm worried about all the ways it can be abused and still look like entertainment. Um, so that's probably my bigger concern about the landscape of tomorrow <laughs> is how this will go, how this will be misused in addition to being used. I guess that we can look a lot into history and understand a lot from history, but I think if you go with that critique, that, like you said, when gamers are looking at, you know, why did you particularly do that around Fallout? That this is this is what you should be doing. Why didn't you consider this? Like, I think that that's being overly critical of something that is in the past, and there's there's no yeah. future in the past. But what there what there is is there is lessons in history, and it's not to be ignored. But then equally, it's just the understanding that. Um, you know, like if you really want to cultivate a brighter future, um, you've got to kind of be come to terms, I guess, with some of the historical implications that we've seen over time. And I think that that's that's probably the best way to put it. It's just that you know you can't don't hold people accountable for their actions and in history, as if you really want to build a more collective and collaborative future. I'm I'm reading a book right now by Michael Shore, the guy who made who created the show The Good Place. Yeah, he has a book called How to Be Perfect, <laughs> and um, one thing he says in it, which I love, is it, it's okay to fail. The whole point is you learn from it and you get better. There's nobody out there who's never failed. There's nobody out there who's never done something bad. The point isn't to be perfect and to always do perfect good things. It's to be better and whenever you do something bad learn from it and be better next time um i think if all we do is cast back and look at everything you've ever done and if you ever did a bad thing you're a bad person and you're bad forever we're not going to end up with a cult, with a society of anybody doing good things because they'll be terrified the moment you do one bad thing you're bad forever so i i don't mind when people look at my older games and say i wish you had like I wish you would let us play more female characters of all the races in Arcanum. And I'm like, we just didn't have the, a budget. It was sprites. We didn't have the budget to make them all. We had to make decisions. But if I was making it now, I'd at least make different decisions. And maybe you couldn't play some of the male characters in those races. So we'd, we'd make some female-only races and some male-only races if we had the same restrictions. But saying, hey, 22 years ago, why did you do this? It's like, we didn't even really think about it. It it wasn't one of those things on our checkboxes of we need to concern ourselves with this. Now we do. I wonder sometimes what we're doing today that in 20 years from now, people are going to go, I can't believe you did that in your game. And for anyone making games right now, if you don't think people are going to look at your games in 20 years and critique some of the things you did as horrible, why would all, you're a horrible person for doing this. You're wrong. Um, everything's going to keep changing. And in 20 years, the kids 20 years from now are going to think you're a horrible person for not having enough hats in your game. I don't even know what, I can't even predict what it's going to be. But um, it's always going to change and that's fine. Yeah, that if, as long as people accept that and go, okay, it's changed. Let's do better. 
now. I think that's the takeaway. I guess like the, I've got two questions before we wrap it up. And, and the first question is naturally a question that a lot of your fans would ask you, and that would be maybe sharing a thought or the, a game that got away or the game that you would like to create. And um, I guess like the last question would be any closing thoughts and key takeaways you'd like to leave with our audience. It's funny. I've got, and I've said this repeatedly, this is one of my books that I write in. Some of them were game ideas. Some of them were game features. Um, many of them are ones I can't do by myself. They require art beyond what I can do. Programming beyond what I can do. Um, or it just requires a team to get that done in a in less than a century. I regret Wildstar was the one and only MMO I worked on. And I left, I worked on it for six years and then left and it went, went out three years after I left. So that that game took nine years to make. I kind of regret that my career's over and I never really got to make the MMO I wanted, which Several people, when they play my games, are like, oh, that's a very Tim Kaine RPG. I wanted a Tim Kaine MMORPG, and I never got to make that. So if I do have a regret, and I often tell people, I regret nothing. I wish, you, you phrase it as something that got away from me. An MMORPG got away from me. I would love to have done something that was as different as Fallout or Arcanum in the MMO space. And I'm not even sure what it is. I have ideas, of course, but... That kind of got away from me. And now it looks like I'm never going to make one. Um, it's a lot of work to make one, though. So I'm not sure. Maybe I dodged a bullet there. And yeah, like finally, the key thought and takeaway that you'd like to leave with our audience. And I would say before that, never say never. Because yeah, that's a good one. Um, I think one thing I found myself repeating all the time is failure is okay. Um, I don't know if that's why a lot of people aren't happy. We talked about so many people seem unhappy now. Failure is okay. It's okay to do something and do badly at it. Learn what you did wrong and get better. That's the whole point. Nobody started anything they did. Nobody picked up a violin and played it perfectly on the first go. Um, you learn from failure. That's what you're supposed to do. And Similarly, like what Michael Schur said in his book, if you ever do badly by someone else, apologize, learn from it, and move on. Don't dwell on it. Don't rage against things. Just learn. If, if everything can get better, and I think they, they do in many ways, just try to be better yourself and try to learn from whatever mistakes you've made. It took me a long time to realize how much I was learning from my failures and not my successes. So hopefully I can help people skip that, the part where I didn't learn that and therefore I made more failures than I should have. Um, it's hard to have anything too insightful. Um, as I told someone, I've spent 42 years making computers go beep boop. So it's hard to, uh, to then go, and now for my philosophical, insightful uh, end note. But I think that's a good one. I think just try to do better. Thank you so, so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. You ask very evocative questions. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much.
Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Purpose Made podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to Purpose Made wherever you normally get your podcasts to hear the latest news and views. You can also find and follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter or contact Peter directly to connect, inquire about Purpose Made or request to be featured on the podcast. We look forward to welcoming you back soon for another episode. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.